Hello. Hi. I'm Shannon. I'm Emma. And welcome to This Podcast Doesn't Exist. Woot woot, Shannon is very tired. Which will make the next two episodes really fun. We're batch we're batch recording, you guys. Episode three of four for today. Coming at you hot. I was gonna say live, but that would be <laughs> not true. Coming um, at you sort of live. Coming to you through some not airwaves, but at least some sound waves in your ear holes. Whoop, so whoop, here whoop, we are. DM us. Where do you listen? Do you listen in the gym? In the car? On the bus? On the train? Is the bus your home if you are Emily Dallas? Um, <laughs> let us know. Please. What else should they do, Emma? They should go to our Instagram at this podcast doesn't exist and clink on clink clink on the clink link. It. Clink in the link in bio to find our bingo card. Shannon and I played the last two episodes. Shannon actually won her episode and I didn't notice. Um, I said it. I know and I didn't of you notice. Listening closely at home, you caught it. Yeah. To the, the dulcet sweet tones of my voice. Going, I won. I got bingo. I don't know what I said, but... Um, I did not win my bingo, but I am very excited because I have no clue what we're talking about today. No idea. No clue. Not a notion. Not a notion. Well, don't worry, because up until about mm, 11.30 last night, I didn't either. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, DM us, follow us. You know the drill. You know the drill. And if you don't know the drill, you can figure out the drill. Yeah, we believe in you. Google is your friend. So, Emma. Yes. We live in D.C. Yes, we do. Well, you live in D.C. I live close to D.C. Yeah. Close enough that I can say it and everyone that doesn't actually live in D.C. will accept it. Yeah. Um, So when people come to visit us for the first time, a lot of the times we end up going to the museums. Yeah. And it's a good time. Uh, what are some of your top picks for Smithsonian museums? Well, my favorite is the National Gallery of Art because mm-hmm. it feels so soothing when you walk into it. And it's just like you walk in the front door, there's this beautiful fountain, and it's always covered in like plants and flowers. And it's big, really tall. Everything seems like marble. There's wings that you go down into, and but you can go down the wings into rooms, and in those rooms are other rooms. And paintings on the wall. It's beautiful. And then the atriums are my favorite. It's just covered in flowers. It gives me 2005 um, Pemberley vibes. Yes. Pride and Prejudice. Because it's like indoors, but it's sculpture garden sort of things. And it's all just very like beautifully cultivated. I love it. That's great. That's not what we're talking about today. But one of the other top picks, for people who have never been to Smithsonian's before, usually I feel like we bring them to like... The American History Museum. Yeah. The Air and Space. Space That's Jack's favorite. Uh Uh-huh. So other than the possibility of an Everest documentary in the IMAX theater at the National History Museum, what is the most exciting part of the Natural History Museum, Emma? The Hope Diamond? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing, like, T-Rex arms. I feel like whenever we get to a point where we're, like, Screw it. We are the only people who care that no one's seen our faces, and most of these people know what we look like, and we just, like, record for video. I feel like that would be helpful. For all of my visual bits? Yeah, because then people can, like, witness your reactions and understand, because <laughs> a lot of times they're pretty quiet, but you're, like, doing a lot. 
Because I'm trying so hard not to blow out the mic, I'm trying to like. That's it, true. It, it ends up being much more physical than That's I mean true. it to be. But then they can fully participate with you. Yes. But I wrote, "That's right, y'all. Today we're talking about one of the most famous sparkly rocks in human history. So it has its own room in the Smithsonian. Okay." And it even inspired James Cameron's blockbuster hit, Titanic. I didn't know that. I mean, obviously, like, the actual, the actual Titanic, Titanic. But, like, the heart of the ocean situation. Oh. The necklace. But in the movie, it's a sapphire. And this is a diamond. Yes. Uh, you know, it's in the name. But the real question is, is it cursed? I don't know, Shannon. Is it? Let's talk about that. <laughs> so, I wrote... General background history, like I do. (laughs) Because is it really a Shannon episode if you don't get some historical facts that you probably don't care about? The answer is no. Humans have been captivated by shiny pieces of hyper-compressed carbon formed within the Earth's mantle for a really long time. (laughs) And then I wrote, what is gold? What is money? Is everything meaningless? The answer is yes. <laughs> yep. Um, literally, like, they're they're just carbon, but we're like, ooh, they're shiny, shiny so they're worth something. Turns I- out we're all just magpies. Truly. Um, I thought you were going to be like, we're all just carbon. And I'm like, oh. I mean, probably partly, but I'm not good at the chemistry. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, um, that's where carbon dating comes from. I'll take you on a carbon date. Hey. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> what would that even consist of? I don't know. I... <laughs> it's just carbon copy paper. <laughs> Please write your name and address so I can write you a letter. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> if you want to be my real life pen pal, let me know, friends. I love sending mail. She sends a lot of letters. I do. It's actually great. I'm Pretty great. In the wrong generation. <laughs> well, actually, no, because otherwise you wouldn't be I'd around. Be dead. I mean, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, haha. In the 1920s, things started getting better. So I could have. You could have. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> some cultures thought gemstones to be the work of the devil because what? they're like too pretty and nice. Oh. Um. Basically, in this mindset, the devil saw how captivated humans were by the vibrant colors of the flowers that were around, and so he attempted to duplicate those colors from Earth and therefore formed gemstones to tempt us. Interesting. So it's the devil. See? (laughs) I find it funny that... It's like a, oh, the natural, the natural world of flowers and everything. Those are beautiful colors. I'm going to make something unnatural out of nature. Well, I think their idea was like they couldn't, they didn't, they didn't know that carbon atoms were being compressed miles beneath the earth due to tectonic plates. Like a a flower, you can be like, oh, I took this seed and I put it in the ground and then I waited and then a flower happened. But that's you're like, fair. What do it's you a bit more to get a shiny thing in the earth. The devil. Oh, oh, that's an interesting point, though, that it's not like something that you can cultivate. You have to. Yeah. Huh. I 
mean, now we figured it out. Yeah, we man-made diamonds and stuff. But, like, yeah, at that point, no way. I love that we say that point like it has a time. We're just, like, in the before times. Yeah. They couldn't figure things out. Ancient alien style. There we go. Um, There is, in the show notes, a History Channel uh, episode. Not of Ancient Aliens. I don't remember which show it is, but it is narrated by Leonard Nimoy. Oh. So that's fun. I didn't have the chance to watch all of it, but... Other cultures actually found the clarity of diamonds and other gemstones to be representative of purity, even going so far as to claim that gems could help heal the sick or cast out the devil. Ooh, why we have crystal mamas now. I guess. I don't, I don't Shit know. Shit's face! <laughs> Your eyes got so big. I'm, that'll be another episode. Another conspiracy for another day. And then I wrote in my notes, Wow, shiny things. Go humans. Moving on. Hmm. The cursed legend. <laughs> so the tale of the Hope Diamond begins with a sketchy Frenchman named Jean-Baptiste Tavernier in the mid-17th century. The merchant traveler supposedly removed the diamond, which at that point was a whopping 112 and 3/16 carats in size, from the eye of an idol of the Hindu goddess Zita in India. All right, so we already know where the curse is from. (laughs) You don't steal things from altars. Yeah. Um, At this point in history, India was thought to be the only place in the world that diamonds could be found because they hadn't been discovered in Brazil or South Africa yet. Native Indians thought gems to have protective properties and therefore kept as much of the natural shape of the gem as possible, which is why it was originally so big. (laughs) Yeah, that I can't even visualize how like how large that must have been. You thought that celebrity engagement ring was big. (laughs) Imagine this on Ariana Grande's hand. (laughs) She'd just fall over. She's She's so tiny. She'd just tip over. Tavernier made six separate trips to India to seek out gemstones between the years 1640 and 1667. Um, And he was in search of gems to sell and trade. Upon returning to Europe with the, quote, Tavernier violet, because violet in that time period was another word for deep blue color. Okay. So upon returning to Europe... Tavernier sold the gem and several others to King Louis XIV of France, the Sun King, Versailles. He's very bougie. Yes. He's very showy. Yes. Not subtle at all. No. Tavernier was then torn apart by wild dogs on a trip to Russia after he sold the diamond, the first victim of the Indian native's curse upon the stolen gem. What? All right, we can move on. I just, I needed to sit for a second with the idea of like, all right, I'm going off to Russia now. Bye. The minute you walk into Russia, dogs. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. In 1673, King Louis XIV decided to recut the diamond to enhance its brilliance. The newly cut diamond was 67 and 1 eighth carats. Louis XIV officially named it the Blue Diamond of the Crown 
and would often wear the diamond on a long ribbon around his neck. Ow, that seems heavy. I mean, I don't think he was doing a lot of walking anywhere. That's fair. He, he probably was just, was just sitting around. A lot of lounging. He did, however, die of gangrene, and <laughs> all of his legitimate children died in childhood. Oh. So. Okay. Well. Curse. Question mark? Maybe. In 1749, Louis XIV's great-grandson, Louis XV, <laughs> was king and ordered the crown jeweler to make a decoration uh, using the blue diamond for the Order of the Golden Fleece, which was a knighthood. And in the photos, you'll see a recreation of this, this emblem that they, okay. they did. And next, Emma, our next section of notes is titled... Victims? Question <gasps> mark? Nicholas Fouquet, who worked for King Louis Fourteenth, is said to have worn the diamond for a special occasion in court. Shortly thereafter, he fell out of favor with the king and was banished from France. The king then changed this sentence to life imprisonment. So they went and they got him back. So Fouquet spent 15 years in the fortress... Of, in a fortress. <laughs> I don't speak French. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. Some people believe that he was the real man in it, in the Iron Mask, but other accounts dispute this. Ooh. And I didn't get into it because that's not the point of today's episode. Marie Louise, Princess de Lamballe, question mark, was a member of Marie Antoinette's court and was her closest confidant. She was killed by a mob in a horrific fashion, and then her head was impaled on a pike and carried to Marie Antoinette's prison window. Oh. So don't borrow jewelry. From your friends. From your friends. When Louis XV died, his grandson, Louis XVI, became king with Marie Antoinette as his queen. They were both beheaded during the French Revolution. Yep. Although, I will point out that it's probably highly unlikely that Marie Antoinette ever wore the blue diamond herself because it was the king's... Yeah. And it was part of his... Situation. His royal jewels or whatever. She had her own. Yeah. So the royal jewels, including the blue diamond, were taken from the royals after they attempted to flee the country. Obviously pre-beheading. Yeah. That would be pretty terrifying. The hoard of jewels was poorly guarded, and the diamond disappeared for a time following the looting in September of 1792. Some believe that the French blue was used to bribe Charles Ferdinand, the Duke of Brunswick, Germany, to not invade France. At this point, Europe was essentially terrified that revolution was catching and that it was spread, and they really just wanted to like isolate France, so they were like, hey... Could you, could you not invade France, please? Hey. Hey, Hey, bestie. Hey, bestie. Hey, girly. (laughs) Hello, bestie. (laughs) Um, But that's, that's not confirmed. That's just speculated. Mm, Okay. And then, okay, so the gem is like out of public record. Okay. Floating around in the, we don't know. 1792, poof. We don't know where it is. Okay. And then, in 1813, a 44-carat blue diamond resurfaces in London under the ownership of jeweler Daniel Ellison. 
It's under his ownership by 1823. So he gets it eventually. It's thought that this is likely to be the diamond in question, but that it had been cut to a smaller size in an attempt to disguise it from Napoleon because he would have wanted to reunite the royal French jewels. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, King George IV of England bought the blue diamond from Daniel Allison, and upon his death, the king's, the diamond was sold to pay off his debts. Because even kings have debts, apparently. <laughs> so they were like, mm, not for you. We're taking this. No crown jewel for you. No. no. Uh, Wilhelm Falls was a Dutch jeweler who recut the diamond again. Unclear as to when in the timeline this was. So I stuck it where it felt like it fit. Um, but his son ended up murdering him and then killing himself. So Whoa. the curse. Just cursing like they do. Cursing like they do. By 1839, or possibly earlier, the blue diamond was in the possession of Henry Philip Hope, one of the heirs of the banking firm Hope and Company, which is where we get the name the Hope Diamond. However, this was not like they didn't name it after themselves. Yeah. Uh, they just referred to it as Diamond Number One. Wait, what were diamond number two, two through whatever? Probably smaller. Oh, if it, yeah. In order that's of significance, fair. maybe. In order of size. Of acquisition. But the Hope family held a lot of influence. They actually, they were greatly involved with American colonial business endeavors. They even helped finance the Louisiana Purchase. Woo woo. And so he didn't have any children, uh, Henry Philip Hope. He didn't have any children. So the diamond was passed down to his oldest nephew upon his death. And then the grandson of that nephew, whose name was Henry Thomas Hope, he died penniless. Uh Uh-oh. With with the diamond? We'll get there. Oh, okay. He, He did not manage the family wealth whatsoever. Because of his gambling and high spending, including marrying an American showgirl, who later divorced him, uh, Francis Hope, so the grandson of the nephew, uh, Francis Hope asked permission from the court in 1898 to sell the Hope Diamond, but his siblings opposed its sale and his request was denied. Uh Uh-oh. He appealed again in 1899, and again his request was denied. In 1901... On an appeal to the House of Lords, Francis Hope was finally granted permission to sell the diamond. That so, took a while. Embarrassing. I mean, but the diamond still holds the family name, which I find interesting. That is interesting. American jeweler Joseph Frankel became the first to bring the Hope diamond to the U.S. in 1901. After this, it changed hands a number of times, often with misfortune coming Uh-oh. in its wake. The Greek jeweler Simon Monarthides sure, that sounds like a, a Greek name uh, became the owner of the diamond and again, unclear on the timeline, but uh, he later drove his car over a cliff and he and his wife and his child all died. Oh no! Uh, some accounts made it more apparent that it was an accident and some just said like he drove his car over so unclear okay 
Um, not great. Moving on. Uh, Mademoiselle Ledieu, an actress, was lent the Hope Diamond by Russian Prince Kanatovsky and was subsequently shot by him the first time she appeared on stage with it on. But don't worry, he himself was killed during the revolution in Russia. Whoa, I just... I wonder what his reasoning was. Yeah, I really don't know. It was a very short that little blurb. very odd. She was very pretty, though, in the photo um, that they had in the article. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> in 1908, Sultan Abdul Hamid of Turkey purchased the stone. He subsequently lost his throne. His favorite, Sabaya, wore the diamond and was slain. <gasps> but again, moving on. This is so... It's bouncing all over the world. I did not know this. I mean, it's a big old diamond. I know. It's a big deal. Uh, the French dealer, Rossinau. Mm, I can't. You guys, enjoy that space on your bingo card. He was the next one to have this gem. And it was from him that Pierre Cartier acquired it for 500,000 francs which is about $2.2 million today. Whoa. That's so much money. And then we're going we're gonna to jump a little bit out of order for dramatic effect. Ooh. But so Cartier, obviously now we know today that the gem is in the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. since we're talking about victims of the curse. James Todd, the mailman who delivered the diamond to the Smithsonian, apparently had his leg crushed in a truck accident shortly thereafter. In a separate accident, accident, he suffered a head injury, and the article was said, oh, also, his house burned down. Uh, <laughs> this poor man! Yeah. All he did was take it from one place to another! I mean, the curse doesn't care. But perhaps the most famous owner of the Hope Diamond was the heiress, Mrs. Evelyn Walsh McLean of Washington, D.C. She was originally shown the gem at the Paris Gallery of Pierre Cartier in 1910, but she didn't like the setting of the diamond. The McLeans, just to give you a little background, were among the richest families in the United States, owning banks, real estate, and the Washington Post. Oh. McLean, Virginia is named after the family. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Since Mrs. McLean had previously told Cartier that objects usually considered bad luck turned into good luck for her, he chose to emphasize the Hope Diamond's negative history in his pitch likely drawing from popular novels of the time, leading to the legend of the curse. Mm. Cartier had the stone reset and brought it with him to the U.S. in 1911. He left the Hope Diamond with Evelyn for the weekend, thinking that she would grow attached to it and want to complete the purchase. This tactic was successful. Evelyn and her husband purchased the diamond for $180,000, which is about $5 million today. That is so much money. At his client's request, Cartier had even put a clause into the contract to assuage their worst curse-related fears. The, quote, customer's privilege to exchange goods in case of fatality. 
So basically, if they had gotten the diamond and then, like, one of them just, like, croaked, they could have been like, Cartier, we want our money back because you have a cursed diamond. <laughs> and he would have been like, yeah, okay, okay. it's in the contract. Apparently, Evelyn's mother-in-law was aghast at the purchase of a supposedly cursed gemstone. Not at the price tag? I mean, they're wealthy. That's never mind. She persuaded Evelyn to send it back to Cartier, who sent it right back to her and then had to sue the McLeans to get them to follow through on the payment. (gasps) Legal action uh, invoked. And realizing, like, there was no getting out of it, Evelyn decided that if she was going to buy the diamond, she should at least take it to a church for a blessing. Oh, okay. Well, she's trying. She wasn't sure she believed in the curse, but May Yo, Yoey, unclear, the ex-wife of Thomas Hope, the showgirl, she's (gasps) the American showgirl, ex-wife and previous wearer of the diamond had publicly warned Evelyn against it in a March 1911 newspaper article. So basically she was like, don't do it, bruh. Don't. Don't. Don't don't buy it. And if you have it, don't wear it. Don't don't touch it. Just leave it. But don't worry about it because following the blessing in the church, Evelyn wore the gem all the time. Oh, no. Sometimes as a head circlet, sometimes as a necklace, sometimes even her great Dane named Mike had the honor of hauling around the fancy carbon. Oh! I told you you would like that part. Oh! His name is Mike? Uh-huh. And he's a great day. Oh, my baby! Which is good, because I feel like if you put that thing on, like, a chihuahua... It, nothing they, else is going to be able to carry it. Yeah. You have a move. <laughs> um, you want to talk about wealthy people doing stupid things. Evelyn would hold lavish garden parties where she would hide the diamond in the bushes and have guests play her favorite game, Find the Hope. (laughs) I'm going to hide this $5 million diamond somewhere in my garden, Mm -hmm. cover it with dirt, go find it, good luck. I'm going to go drink, I'm going to go drink my tea. You all, I'm going to watch scrounge around in your beautiful clothing all around my garden. Good luck. You find it. You don't get to keep it. You have to give it back to me. (laughs) Even within her eccentricity, she was nice. She would lend it to brides as there's something blue for their wedding. Or even... um, That feels cursed. For her, it was... she, She felt that it wasn't bad luck. When she got it blessed, she was like, good to go. But then also she, the opportunity to hold the Hope Diamond would be auctioned off as like a fundraiser thing, like at an auction. That's so cool. I'm like, oh, I think it's dumb because it's not like you get to keep it or even like wear it out for a night. It's like you get to hold it. Oh, see, I like that idea because what she's doing is basically saying, I have this special thing that other people are scared of and they don't want it, Oh, that's but not- they want to get close to it. That's not how I interpreted it. I just... It's a rich, fancy thing. It is very weird. It's like, oh, I want to sit abstract, in, like, yes. Kim Kardashian's car. I'm not going to drive it, but I can, like, sit in it or, like, pose next to it. People do pay for that kind of stuff, yeah, I though. I know, which is stupid. Yeah, it's very dumb. In my opinion. I mean, do, do with what your money what you will, but <laughs> I think it's stupid. Evelyn actually pawned the Hope Diamond in 1932 
to hire an investigator to track down the kidnappers of Charles Lindbergh's baby. Whoa! The remaining money was to be used for a possible ransom. But when the money was not needed, the diamond was returned to her because... That's so interesting. The baby, yeah. And then I just love this quote. Uh, quote, Mrs. McLean's flamboyant ownership of the stone lasted until her death in 1947. I just love that. Flamboyant. Flamboyant ownership. So, Emma, you've heard yes. about the curse. Mm-hmm. I have some news for you. Yes. Uh, a lot of it is probably made up. I assume so when you said that Cartier was like, oh, I'm going to tell you this story. Yes. So, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier was a real man. He was a traveler and a merchant. Rather than stealing the gem from a Hindu idol, he bought it at the diamond market. And it's believed to have come from the Collier Mine in Golconda, India. He did return to France in 1688 and sold the blue diamond to King Louis XIV, as well as 44 large diamonds and 1,122 smaller diamonds. (laughs) This is so exact. I love that. They're a girl's best friend, haven't you heard? Mm. Tavernier was made a noble, wrote his memoirs in several volumes, and died at the age of 84 in Russia without a wild dog in sight. I do like the idea of old men going, you know what people want to read? All about My me. memoir. You should get your dad to write a memoir. He would. He would. He could talk about his bone shaman... Crime teeth experiences. I bet you there would only Crime be one teeth. chapter, and the no. other chapters would be full of all of the research he's done about World War II. Well. Like every boomer dad. Good for you. Good for you, Dr. K. Keep living the dream. <laughs> right. From here, the timeline remains somewhat accurate in terms of, like, we definitely know the Hope family had it. Yeah. We definitely know... He, but a lot of the in-between of, like, the Russian, act, like, prince and the actress and the... the it, it gets a little bit complicated, and that's probably fictitious. But also, I feel like, as similar with the Macbeth curse in a way, like, people notice bad things only when people are associated with the diamond versus... Mm-hmm. I think it's more a case of if you're wealthy enough to afford such an extravagant situation, then you're probably prone to some misbehavior because you're used to getting away with things. I'm sure there are wealthy people who are very ethical and responsible, but the ones that get written about are like the misbehaving types. Mm. So I feel like there's a little bit of that involved. So the curse was mostly marketing. Aw. Or was it? (gasps) This is a quote from Thought Co. Though McLean wore the Hope Diamond as a good luck charm, others saw the curse strike her too. McLean's firstborn son, Vincent. Vincent? V-I-N-S-O-N. Vincent. Vincent? Anyway. I was was looking for the T at the end of that. Like Vincent. No. 
Uh, but their firstborn son died in a car crash when he was only nine. Oh. McLean suffered another major loss when her daughter committed suicide at the age of 25. In addition to all of this, McLean's husband divorced her, ran away with another woman, and then was declared insane and confined to a mental institution until his death in 1941. Whoa. The press went wild after this first tragedy occurred, so when her son was killed, citing the curse upon the diamond. And this actually fell in line with a lot of other popular curse narratives of the era, such as those surrounding the Titanic or the mummies in Egypt. Essentially, the public did not mind hearing stories about how very flamboyantly flaunting their wealth upper-class people were now getting what was seen as their comeuppance. Uh, so that's, the, the that's press really definitely funny. played it up because the average Joe is like, wow, your life's so whatever. You <laughs> like, got a cursed diamond because yeah. you had the money to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and this made me kind of sad, but also could be attributed to the curse. Though Evelyn McLean had wanted her jewelry to go to her grandchildren when they were older, her jewelry was put up for sale in 1949, two years after her death, in order to settle debts from the estate. Oh. Following McLean's death, many of her jewels were purchased by the famed New York jeweler Harry Winston, who eventually donated the Hope Diamond to the Smithsonian Institute in 1958 for a very nice tax break. I mean... One, why not? Two, he probably was just like, I don't want to deal with the curse if it exists, and if it doesn't exist, it's fine. It's just, I don't want to, I don't want it. Apparently, the, Sm the Smithsonian, and even President Eisenhower, received a number of letters and newspaper stories suggesting that the acquisition of such an ill-famed stone by a federal institution meant bad luck for the entire country. <laughs> oh, well, that's a good point. in the midst of the Cold War. That's interesting. And that brown paper box it came in? Well, that's long been a treasured item in the National Postal Museum, illustrating the trust the famous jeweler placed in the U.S. Postal Service to deliver the mail. That's really hilarious to me. Have you been inside of the National Postal Museum? No. It's right next to Union Station in D.C. If you ever come to visit, um, it's a lot of stamps. It's a lot of brown paper packages. <laughs> Tied up with string? Yeah. It's very sweet. I'm sure that there's plenty else that they have put up for exhibit. The last time that I was there, it was mostly stamps because they have way too many of them, which makes sense. They're a postal museum, but... I don't find them as interesting as some others do. So. That would be a little bit embarrassing if they didn't have a bunch of stamps. That's true. But I find that very funny. That they're like, this is the box I just love that the Hope that Diamond were, came in. That they were like, the trust Harry Winston had in the mail. They're great. I love the Postal Service. They're, they're wonderful. So the Hope Diamond is currently valued at upwards... Of $350 million. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm dead now. That type of money doesn't exist. I mean, all money is fake. So As we established at the very beginning. Yes. 
Uh, the weight of the Hope Diamond for many years was reported to be 44.5 carats. In 1974, it was removed from its setting temporarily and found to actually weigh 45.52 carats. Oh, more than they thought. So a whole extra carat and a 0. Point, or 0. 0.02 <laughs> numbers. A couple more carats and some few more slices in there. The Carrot Museum. Oh, that would be hilarious. We get if it there, turns a corner. We get there and we're like, this is not what I thought. I've got like my to-go salad of like carrots. carrots and balsamic. And I'm like, this isn't what I asked for. It's just jewels it's everywhere. Like, I mean, I do like shiny stuff. Mm. I love the scene in um, the BBC Sherlock where Moriarty breaks in to the crown jewels. And it's just, I love Andrew Scott. That's beside the point. Anyway. <laughs> Phantom reference that you didn't ask for. The Hope Diamond has left the Smithsonian only four times since it was donated. In 1962, it was exhibited for a month at the Louvre in Paris, France, as part of an exhibit entitled Ten Centuries of French Jewelry. In 1965, the Hope Diamond traveled to South Africa, where it was exhibited at the Rand Easter Show in Johannesburg. In 1984, the diamond was lent to Harry Winston Incorporated in New York as part of the firm's 50th anniversary celebration. And in 1996, the Hope Diamond was again sent to Harry Winston Incorporated, this time for cleaning and minor restoration work. That's awesome. And that, my friends, is the curse, or maybe not, of the Hope Diamond. Woot woot! Very well done. Thanks. Shout out to all the sources that I mushed together into one document. <laughs> They're in the show notes. But I also looked in our um, our Cursed Objects book. Oh, yeah. I was reading it earlier and I was trying to be, I didn't want you to see that I was reading out of it for my... Definitely didn't notice anything. Okay, good. <laughs> Emma would be a terrible spy. I, I yeah, I, there's no... There's not a spy gene in me. I'm very oblivious to a hell of a lot. But yeah, there you go. It's not really that spooky-ooky of a curse, but... I mean, it's still a curse. So, I have a confession to make. These are my confessions! What? I almost did the Hope Diamond for this for round. For this episode? <laughs> yes. Amazing. We could have saved ourselves an extra episode. <laughs> we could have just collabed. Oh but I, I decided against it only because as I kept reading, I went, Shannon's going to want to do this. <laughs> and I find myself in these instances. The only time I like went over that was for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Which was so fun. It's so fun. I love it so much. But thank you. I really, I okay, even if Cartier like made up most of the story it's still a very like it's still a constructed story there's still a curse there and maybe he like threw some things in there just to be like and did you hear about the russian who the actress killed his actress blah 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 yeah well the thing is i have seen the hope diamond me too several times yeah but i didn't know any of this me neither because that room is usually so full of people that you're just trying to look at the, di- the at the diamond. You're not trying to, like, read any of the information. And it's usually children because it's, like, school trips. 
They're everywhere. This is why I'm like, I just, if I lived closer, I feel like I'd be rolling up to museums like at, well, I guess the school groups get there like at 10 a.m. when they open too. They should do a thing. It's like a school group day. No, no, no. Literally the opposite. Oh. Um, something that happened that we like accidentally stumbled upon. It was like our last week in London on my study abroad trip. And we hadn't actually been like learning anything in our classes. So it's not like we had homework. So we were kind of all just like. Do to do. F it. Let's go. Let's go have la, fun. La, la. So there was one night, there, or it was a day, it was one of the girls in our group, it was her 21st birthday, which obviously in the UK is like not That's a not it, yeah. But still, we That's were still like, fun. we're buying you a cider or whatever. But she wanted to go to all the different like Sherlock locations. So like okay. we went to Speedy's, we went to the, the hospital, we yeah. went to 221B, which is very cheesy if you it bother is. to go inside, but I highly recommend it. It it's, is very cheesy. very funny. But... Also, like, and then we, like, did karaoke randomly, but it, we, it's not like we sat down and stayed. It's like, we went in for one drink. One of the girls in our group that, like, was in a band back home got up, did one song, and then we cleared out, like, within, like, ten minutes. We stopped at King's Cross and did the whole, like, Harry Potter photo op situation. But then we ended up at their science museum. I don't know what the actual, like, title it, but it... And they were doing this event that was, like, Science After Dark. Or like, oh, yeah. you remember you telling me about and this. And it was, like, only adults. No yeah. children allowed. And the theme was, like, gender and sexuality. So, like, when you went in, you could, you could pick a wristband that either said, like, likes boys, likes girls, likes both, or, like, prefer not to say. Um, not as, like, a dating thing, but just as, like, a visual, like... You don't. It's you part. You're you're almost a part of the exhibit. Yeah, like you can't guess what people's orientation is just by looking at them or whatever. But you got to go around. But they also it was like the normal exhibits that you could learn about. But they had like a band in one area and like a poetry slam and then just like bar carts. <laughs> and I was like, I love it here. <laughs> in America, we could not do this. This is my dream. Americans could not be trusted with alcohol in a museum at no. nighttime. But I just want that. But, like, at 8 a.m. Like, I would go to a museum at 8 a.m. if I knew that it was only going to be, like, other dorky adults. And we'd all just be sipping our, our little lattes and walking around. Maybe there's, like, a little bit of light jazz playing in the background. Just, like... I like Chillax. that. But that isn't a thing. So. I feel like, though, it, it really could be. It's just a matter of getting those museums to, like... Because, I mean, Smithsonian museums, you don't pay to go in. They're free. Right. So the events that they host, a lot of the time, end up being fundraising events. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you had, like, hey... If you want to come to this event at 8 in the morning, the thing you have to pay for is a coffee in the door. You can't bring your own coffee in or whatever. But, like, that's how they recoup some money for, like, fundraising or whatever. And I feel like it would work. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll talk to the Smithsonian tomorrow. Okay, great. You're welcome. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But also I think if you and I just try and go to museums, like, when they open... On like a random Tuesday, but it's in the fall because I think the summer. Yeah, the is summer is rough just yeah because tourists and the, the children are off of school. Yes, 
show the children the museum. Please, please I do. Just don't we don't want to be there. There with them because <laughs> I am. I actually do like to read the little things. That's hard when I'm feeling anxious with so many tiny bodies and noises in one room. Yeah, and as we've established, I'm very good at shaming children. <laughs> So there have, there truly have been instances where I have been in a public place and there has been a child who is in my way and I go, hi, can you move? And they look at me like I have just stabbed them. How dare you hold them accountable, Emma? Well, if you stand directly in front of- His name is Acorn and he is the most important thing in the universe. The kid's name is Acorn. Yeah, his mother has told him. (laughs) Meanwhile, their dog's name is Kevin. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow takes it very seriously. Gwyneth, I'm sorry. I love your work in the... I love your work on film. I can't really abide your, your business practices. But no. That's for another episode. Possibly the same episode as The Crystals. Celebrity con artists? I mean, specifically Goop. Oh, yeah. But uh, that's a ridiculous Netflix show if you've ever wanted to I will I will get right on that actually because that fascinates me yeah it's a lot but anyway um, (laughs) thanks for coming to our mini TED talk on children museums and goop (laughs) (laughs) the name of my album (laughs) (laughs) oh the chaos oh god we gotta go we got a whole other other one of these to do (laughs) episodes and I'm afraid because I've been told to be afraid. So get ready. Week, if you'd like to hear me cry or um, be mad at Emma, tune in if you enjoy listening to Emma apologize but not really mean it. Um, rate, review, subscribe, etc. You know the drill. And if not, like, let us know. You'll figure it out. Leave a review you. or leave us alone. Yes, exactly. And until next time, remember this podcast doesn't exist. Like the curse, maybe. Or maybe there is a curse and it's all going to happen upon the children. <laughs>